Hello, friends. Welcome to Do Your Part. Uh, this week we have a very special guest, a celebrated author, uh, speaker, um, father, husband, world-class financial planner, just a great guy, a good friend, and uh, feel real blessed that we got to sit down and kind of just go over the finer points of life and learn about what he's learned. And uh, I think uh, there's there's a lot of great substance there, and we hope you hope you enjoy it. So without further further ado, our interview with Peter J. Merrick. Enjoy. Well, gentlemen, thank you for taking the time today and welcome to Do Your Part. We're thrilled to have an incredible guest with us. He's an author. He's read over 5,000 books. Try to wrap your mind around that. Uh, he's a speaker. He's a finance manager. He's he's done more things than, than I could even dream of. So Peter J. Merrick, welcome to Do Your Part, and thank you, sir, for taking the time today. How are you? Great. How are you doing out in San Diego? Miss you guys. Yeah, we're missing you too, man. Got to get out of Toronto and get over here. I, I'm sure it's nice in Toronto this time of year, though, right? It's beautiful. Like I wouldn't, This is the time that you want to be in Toronto. So, you know, in terms of, uh, I mean, one of the things I heard that, you know, long time ago, I heard this and it's kind of stuck with me is people are going to remember you for not what you have or what you had is for what you gave. Right. So reading your article really brought that back to mind for me, you know, and I'm wondering in your experience with your clients, is there like a psychological or psyche of things where they've been successful, they have all these things and yet they feel like, you know what, I still feel like I'm missing something. And that's kind of when they start looking at philanthropy that, you know, kind of as a last piece of kind of leaving a legacy behind. Have you noticed that that's kind of where they're, uh, you know, where they flip the switch to turn to that? Now, one of the greatest documents on philanthropy that's ever been written, that I, and it was written 122 years ago, and it was written by uh, Edward Carnegie. It's called The Gospel Wealth. Anybody who is listening to this podcast, you can Google it and read the whole thing. And when you hear about uh, Buffett giving all his money away and Bill Gates giving their money away, it's not new. It all comes from uh, Andrew Carnegie in his essay. And he wrote this essay in 1898. And at that time, he'd only given away a fraction of a fraction of his net worth. And what he did is he wanted to figure out for himself what he was going to do. And he sold his business uh, and he became the wealthiest man on the planet. He probably the equivalent of about $200 billion today when he sold his uh, his companies. And But up until that time, he'd only given up a fraction of his money. So in this essay... He talks about three ways to give wealth away. And this man stood behind what he wrote. And the reason why is by the time this man was no longer walking in 1919, the last time in North America, we had a big flu pandemic. So I'm sure if they were to test for the Spanish flu, they might've been able to say that he died of that. Right, right. Right. So, So he wrote this document, and by the end of his life, and I'm going to specifically focus on the three modes of giving money away that he had actually talked about. He said the purpose of taxes 
is to take away from the wealthy who are responsible to help lift people up. Because if it wasn't them being wealthy, it's going to be someone else. The law, the Pareto Law 80-20 rule, it just so happens that certain people, they get lucky. They're working hard, but you know, being born in America, you have a much better chance of being successful than someone born in sub-Saharan Africa. So it's your responsibility to give. So his argument, he doesn't believe in getting rid of state taxes. He was the biggest proponent of it. He says, if you didn't give when you're alive, they should take it all away before you die. That's really good. I like that a lot. For him, providing education for him was the most important thing. So someone who was going to work hard, had vision and work, he wanted them to have the lifestyle and the success that he had had. Got it. And that was important to him. Yeah, no, it makes sense. But like, you know, one of the things that's been been weighing on my mind almost all day, you've been so involved in planning of people's lives, right? Exit strategies, buy, sells, key, all this stuff, right? And at the end of the day, how important, knowing what you know now, is it to have a plan? Okay. So, so let me just share with you. I, I was, uh, in 2003, I blew up masterfully. Well, I almost went bankrupt and, you know, it was the greatest growing experience. So I was very fortunate because I was one of the first CFPs in Canada. Got it. And what came out of that is I had done some writing and I had some public speaking experience. So I got hired at a university here and it was more for subsistence. And it's, I didn't wake up thinking I want to be a professor or an instructor, whatever it is. And I wasn't part of the union, so they could overwork me. They were giving me 21 hour flight hours. That means like I was doing my own marking, plus I was teaching and doing prep for 21 hours. And one of the assignments, because it was my assignment, because I thought my life was going a certain way and it blew up. So what I did with my students is I gave them a really good software. Uh, and in addition to that, I gave the assignment was this. I wanted them to start off and imagine the most incredible day at age 65. And I wanted them to describe it. You know, I'm in San Diego because, you know, the rest of the world thinks you guys live in the most <laughs> perfect place in the world. It's, it's right? pretty you good. Take it for granted. Yeah. And it's like, it's San Diego and like my house overlooks like, you know, the beach, like La Jolla Shores or Black Beach. And I'm not going to tell anybody who's not from San Diego or Black Beach is, but it overlooks it. And, you know, I live in a beautiful house and my kids are coming over and they, they, they are, they're doctors and my grandkids just got into my school, you know, the university I went to. And, you know, I had like this great business. Now what I want them to do is I want them to look back at where they are now and what got them there and they had to work backwards so let's go over the six step scenario because i will conclude with this if they were lazy and they had a simple life where they ended up with 20 million dollars that means they've never worked the 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 software because i knew that they would have to start a business sell land take rent and the thing allowed it allowed like up to 60 different variables 
I told them, like, if you come back and you give me like $20 million, you're an insignificant person. Since you're insignificant, <laughs> I can give you a C plus. And if they could get up to the 5 billion, hey, then you're going to be, at least you think you're going to be significant. And I'm not going to doubt you because maybe you are. And I got to tell you, my greatest uh, referrals come from my students. Like I have about three of them, sorry, 300 of them who are working through the different financial institutions in the city of Toronto and they feed me. Cause I, and I said, if you can, if you give me a significant life, I'm going to give you an A plus. It's like, <laughs> that's simple. You have like $5 billion at the end of uh, 65, you're going to get an A plus. And if, and it better, and, and you better have a lot of variables and they're not like, I'm just doing this and I won the lotto. If you give me, you know, 20 million, you're going to get a C plus like that. You know, that was my thing. So you better tell me a great story and then you better tell me a great story, how you did it. And then you've got to go and take this software. You got to show me how you're going to do it. So that being said, the six step process can be applied to philanthropy, all types of planning. One, know what you want. The only way to do that is you got to dream, got to dream big. What you need to do is what, what do I want? And basically, don't stop yourself from thinking, you know, what life can be. Then what you have, and you're, so you're going to set your goals at that point. What's your intent? Number one, goals and intent. Number two, where are you now? So with my students, I said, okay, you're having a base salary of $15,000. That's it. That's where you're starting because the software allowed them to get increases and whatever, stop somewhere, start somewhere. So this is where you are. Tell me where you are now. Tell me how you filled in the gap. So what I would have them do, step one, is what's your goals? Step two, tell me where you are right now. Step three, let's do the planning. Step four, we better write it down. Because if it's not written down, it doesn't mean anything. And Step five, implement. What good is a plan if I don't do anything with it? And lastly, what uh, has to happen is life is a shit show like we spoke about. So the last thing is you got to keep on evaluating. Was I helpful, guys? Yeah, so you put, you put planning in, in step four of that phase, right? Well, no, I would, I would actually say begin with the end of mind. Always, okay. Clarify your present situation by collecting all relevant information, personal financial data. Number three, work backwards from your desired, where you, your desired goal to where you are right now. So you're able, I want to go to California. I, I have to focus on like where am I now and how am I going to get there? It's going to be a car, a plane, you know, a train. And I have to like work backwards and figure out how I'm going to get there. Same with planning. I want to be really successful and I want to own a business and I want to be in telecommunication and I want to own a big house. And whatever. Well, I also have to be honest. Number two is where I am. And then I have to work back from backwards to where I want uh, to be to where I am right now. And that's what project management is. Project management is I want to build a bridge. That's my goal. 
what what do I have right now? What's accessible to me? Okay, what am I going to need to build the bridge? Number four, put your intent down on paper. Have a financial plan. Once you've gone through that exercise, it means nothing if it's not written down. Number five, take action. You have to actually implement it into the world. There's lots of people who have plans, written plans. They do nothing with it. I've seen architecture plans that homes were never built. I was looking for homes in San Diego, and they were showing me, well, we did these plans, but we never got around to doing it. And then lastly, is consistently go back to review your goals and plan. And that applies for every stage in a person's life from early adulthood to when they are planning philanthropy. Because different things at different points in your life are going to be importantly in your That's great. I honestly, I mean, that thing about the software, I was, I was just visualizing in my head, like if I had that growing up either at college level or even high school level, I mean, how powerful to have something that shows you how you get from here to there. I think for a lot of people, the challenges coming up with seeing how one gets from one place to the next, how do you amass that kind of fortune? How do you earn that kind of wealth and what's needed to get there? And having a software that kind of says, hey, you know, well, I, I was I was reading. You guys have a new neighbor, Bill Gates, moved to Rancho Santa Fe. He's building a big house there. Del Mar, actually, I think. Del Mar? I don't know. No, Del Mar. He's uh, in Del Mar. Oh, in Del Mar. I thought he was in Rancho Santa Fe. Well, he built. He okay. bought the house right there on the beach. But anyway. Well, my whole point is that the the urban legend, because who knows if it's true, right? But it sounds good. He got Forbes five hundred. He, what he did is he put his name number one and he reordered everything when he was a kid. So he was number one and whoever was number one, they became number two. And he did that and he visualized. I don't know if it's true, but it's a good story, isn't it? Yeah. He and visualized you visualized know, them being number one. And, and you know, when you were talking about this breaking down for, for the longest time, the screensaver on my iPhone was the saying that a dream written down with a date becomes a goal, a goal broken down into steps becomes a plan, a plan backed by action makes dreams come true. Yes, that's a great, there's another saying, thoughts become words, words become actions, actions become habit, and habits become your destiny. And Peter, you know, with the different areas of planning um, and all the different you know, aspects of wealth management and so forth. What attracted you to the, to the philanthropic planning? What was it, um, is it something that you personally became passionate about and doing it yourself? Is it something where you felt like it was a kind of an underserved arena? Um, and um, how, what drew you to, to, to that aspect of planning? Well, what would my clients, like I like, if I want to catch salmon, I f I go and you know off the banks of Vancouver Island and find it. I go after, I work with like very successful individuals who are transitioning. They like me. I become their trusted advisor. It sometimes it really sucks because 
no one else can do it. You know, they say build a team, whatever. <laughs> no, I've got clients who just, they like me. They're very like controlling of their lives and they want someone they would trust to help. And it, at that point, when something came up, I think it was a very successful client I had. who had a company that was worth about $250 million. Um, He came to me. Wow. He came to me and he goes and says, like, you know, you know a little more than me. Well, I, I wouldn't, at that time, I was a little younger, so uh, I wouldn't tell him that I knew a little more than him in that area. But I found... <laughs> Isn't that it? The novice effect. <laughs> and, you know, I learned. I worked with lawyers. I got the designations. Like, the best act is white designation. And it's run by the Society of Trust and State Practitioners. There's a, there's a branch in San Diego. So these are ways that I became educated. And I met professionals, lawyers, uh, accountants who specialized in that area. And it was, you know, it was a growth. And these people came to me and then they talk, right? Because people hang out together and they would say, hey, call Peter. And the next minute I know, I'm anemic and I'm in the hospital because I'm working 90 hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, wait. Not funny, but, that, you know, that happened to you, what, last year, two years ago? Last year. Last year, I, uh, I wasn't, I was working nonstop. And I, and I say my work is my hobby. Like, I love doing what I do because I work for myself. I get paid as much as I want to make, and I get paid. No one has to pay me. Like, that's it. I just like it. Sure. And I live with people who are like me. The guys, the people I'm attracted to, uh, Amir and, and Lee, are people who did not come from money, but they were hungry, and they made it happen. And it was wonderful that, you know, and they're like, they've got great stories on top of that. Uh, you know what the most beautiful thing is dealing with the, the business owners I've worked with? What's that? When they get older, most people look at these people and they see uh, their shiny armor. You know, they got the most expensive armor because they're, you know, they're, they're successful. They're, you know, the kids went to the best schools because they came nothing and they didn't want their kids to suffer. And the thing that I value the most, and I'm going to share with you guys a, a very important story that transcends money. What uh, they do with me, and I really feel like honored, they remove their breastplates and they show me the 20 inch scar and the, the lack of the rib and all the stuff that like, you know, to the world they've hidden. And they reveal themselves to me and they asked me, can I stitch help with any skill that I have to stitch them up so maybe they can have a good last third of their life. They can enjoy their children or their grandkids because they sacrificed and never saw their children. You know, could they make sure that kids uh, didn't have huge amounts of debt for university, ones who were deserving because they were saddled with it? Or, you know, they're, you know, they had uh, a brother or you have a spouse who died of a certain type of, or worse, a child who died of a certain type of cancer. And they want to make sure that uh, the parents, money isn't an issue for those parents. And they want to do something. It's something important to them. And they all have stories why, they, why something's meaningful. 
So one of the things that I remember it was one of the greatest experiences of my life happened when I was early in the, in the career. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, loud and clear, man. You're perfect. Yeah, great. perfect. So this was very, very special. And, and these people were very, very gentle and great towards me. And, uh, and uh, one of them is still alive. And what I'm going to share with you is like a combination of the greatest love story I've ever seen, which I, 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 I use them in my book, and also the greatest lesson I ever received. I met, I went to a university in, in Canada. It was the largest one here. And I got very active in student government. I was a vice president of student council for two years. And then I, I became a student rep on the board of governors. And there was this, uh, this couple who were very successful. They built all around the world. And they were like, they had the order of Canada, the order of France. They had the order of Hungary. They had like, you know, all these, all the great work that they did. And this, um, this couple I met and, I became friends with them because I was probably one of the only students they knew at the campus that they were donating. They donated made the largest donation to a Canadian university at that time. They made about a $30 million donation and this cornerstone building was, was named after them. And I became friendly with them and they liked me, you know, for whatever reason. And I started getting active in, in their foundation as a volunteer and we're talking this uh, Helen, the, 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 the wife, and George, the husband. She was a powerhouse in herself. Like, and he, like, they were probably worth about several billion dollars. And one day, George comes into the office when I'm you know, working on one of their charity things, which is a passion project for Helen, because George is comfortable. He's in his early 70s, and he's comfortable in his demeanor and he just saw this guy panhandling on the street and he was an immigrant to Canada. He came to Canada with nothing. Literally he donated money and bought a prime ministership for someone who gave him his first $25 when he came to Canada. He, he paid it back by making the largest political donation ever made. How cool is that? Canadian history. We're talking that's a big payoff. And they gave so much to so many universities and institutions in Canada and France and Hungary and Czechoslovakia. Like they were, they were giving back. And he comes into the office and he's so, you know, he's lost. He's, he doesn't have words because of what he saw. And I go in and I sit down with him and I got a piece of how this man went from nothing to something. And that's more valuable than the money they had me manage and whatever I got involved in. He goes and tells me he saw a man panhandling on the street. And he says, why, did this, why is this man panhandling? He was born in this country. There's so freedom. He thought Canada was the greatest country in the world because that's where he had his life. That's where he had his wife. And that's where he built you know, an entire incredible life and business. And he saw everything. He said, why did this guy not take the opportunities available to him? And I'd say that in any Western democracy, if you want something and you stay in school and you get a job and you work hard and you're going to do really well, you're going to become middle class or more. It's like, it's a simple formula. 
You know, it's worth a million times and tens of millions of times. So I asked him a question, and this is this is the gem he gave me. I asked George, when you were really young, what did you imagine doing? And he told me that when he was young, he imagined building. He he had a PhD in engineering. His father was one of the most prevalent doctors in Hungary. That's why I keep on bringing up Hungary. And he dreamed of building. Now, his father's family thought that engineers were like, you know, no different than a bricklayer. So he decided to go his own way and go into engineering. And then he got a little active during the uh, Hungarian uh, uprising in 1956. So he had to come to Canada. And when he was in Canada, he was as a student refugee. And this young kid was running a Hungarian student refugee fund. And he gave him, very political at the time, he gave him his first $25. He left. His wife uh, was stuck behind the iron curtain. They were separated for 12 years. He worked his ass off. He brought her over. He wanted to give her the life that she wanted. And she would have taken out eyeballs for him. To this day, he's, he passed away a number of years ago. She brings flowers to the grave and the picture of him she kisses. They had the greatest love affair ever. And he built around the world. He built uh, Expo 67, all the pavilions. And, they, they, and he only arrived in 56 in, in Canada. Then he went to France. And he built all downtown France. He built downtown Tehran. I mean... He had he lost the fortune when uh, when the revolution happened, and I asked him at the end, George, that image you had when you were a boy, did you accomplish it? And he had this his he had this like a bit of uh, a smile came across his body, and he said he had. Here is a man who came from nothing, created something. And more importantly, him and his wife wanted to give that opportunity to other people. So their passion was giving to post-secondary like institutions around the world. And what it was is he had that vision. He achieved his vision. And he was such, he was at peace with his life and he wanted to actually help the next generation he knew his responsibility to the next generation and i really believe someone who gives genuinely they are going to they want to make sure that the world is better than they found it that seems to be a, an underlying theme with a lot of these people that you you kind of hear towards the end of their life when they reflect it's that that was the cause i see i've read that a bunch i've heard that a bunch where I leave the world better than when I showed up? And it seems that even though he, you know, what was his vision early on and how did it match up? Or was it, was it not so much about that? Just that he felt he built, he, he, uh, he, That's a good question. I'm sorry. Cause in my mind, I know what it is and I didn't share it. So thank you very much for, uh, sometimes I get ahead of myself. His vision was built, becoming one of the greatest builders in the world, building around the world, building towers. Got it. And he had built everywhere. He had been honored by everybody. Uh, and most importantly, he had 
the most beautiful, wonderful, greatest relationship ever. And if you do read my book, the story of Harold and his wife, Sarah, that is that couple. It's a great story. Everybody's I would felt so, and, and getting back to what you were saying, the fact that they invited me into their lives and they, I became, you know, they treated me like, like I felt like I was treated like family. I felt so blessed at more than any other thing they did for me. That moment he, he gave to me and he actually explained what was the inner workings of someone who had nothing, who created something special. And the fact that he had a sense of calm at that stage in his life, he didn't need to do it anymore. And he got, to the uh, other than the pleasure he got from his family and his wife, the, the, of knowing that future generations were going to be given the same opportunity that he was given through education and also to protect, you know, the values of a society, because that to him was really important, that allowed that opportunity. And it's usually, there's several ways of giving. Uh, Maimonides, who was a mid-aged uh, philosopher, he was, his family was originally from Spain and then he was in Egypt. He wrote, he called, uh, it was called Eight Levels of Charity. He wrote this document in about the 11th century, and it's also a very powerful document. And he said, the highest level is to give to another so they, that, that they can actually make a living by giving them a loan or going to business them so they will eventually be able to give to the next person to help them out. That's the highest level. Not just giving it to someone and saying, here's food. No, let me teach you how to fish. Let me help you learn how to fish so you're going to be able to have a living for yourself. That's the highest level of giving. The second highest level of giving is giving and not knowing who's receiving it and they don't know who's giving it. The second highest level. Very few people are willing to do the second highest level because it's very, you know. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like, what do you, what exactly do you mean? If I gave money to an organization and I said to them, I don't want, uh, I don't want you to know that I'm giving it. It's anonymous. And I don't want to know who's going to benefit from my money. Got it. That's perfect. That's the highest level. That's the second highest level of giving. The third highest level of giving is you, you know who you're giving to. But the person who's receiving it, the, be- the person who's going to benefit doesn't. So you know what that means, boys? Your name isn't on a building or a That's hospital. Right, right. That's, That's right. it. That's the highest level. The, thir- the, the fourth level of giving is, is uh, I know who they are. They know who I am. And then the lowest level is the person who can give uh, give but chooses not to and that's the eight i just skipped through the other ones <laughs> but, and the, the second lowest is the one who can give more but chooses not to so, so peter yes now i was gonna say you know this is great um kind of a personal question um having done this exercise with students having done this exercise with wealthy clients um have you 
taking yourself through the same exercise as to what you would see life at 65 and also have you taken a step back to look okay what did I think life would be like as a child and am I headed there and 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 have you personally gone through this as well because I mean I'm hearing this and I think one thing I want to do is go and do some of the things you're saying here because it almost gives you somewhat of a bogey right gives you a, a target so that in everyday hustle we all you know the days are long but the weeks are short you know the days yeah. are long and the months fly back but if you have something to come and revisit and remind you that while your head was down and you did these 10-hour days you're inching towards this thing out here i think that again keeps the motivation going and lets you know that hey i'm, I'm getting closer to something that was really important to me I'm very fortunate because uh, my career has given me the opportunity to discover that I, I love writing. I just, it's just something I need to do. I need to articulate. I, I experience things. And I just have to put it down on paper. Um, after my accident happened, I wrote 90 pages of my next book. I just sat down. It just flowed. It was the easiest thing. The second easiest thing ever to do is I started giving gratitude letters by writing, I don't know, I did like over 200 reviews on LinkedIn. And I just enjoyed it. It was just, you know, I didn't expect anything from it. I just, it was something that was good. So what am I saying? I got, like, I, I almost, I pulled myself from under a pickup truck last week. And when I thought after the whole situation, when like I was over the shock a few hours later, I realized, just one more inch, I would have been dead. Or I would have been crushed. Wow. I could have been, I could have been paralyzed. And and it's it it happened within one year of like when I found out I was anemic and my hemoglobin. I'm going to use a metric uh, for a healthy male. Your hemoglobin should be about um, 140 milliliter, whatever it is, per like 100,000 or something. Mine was 56. Wow. And I knew there were issues and I did ignored it. And the question I've been asking myself, gentlemen, and this is really what happened to a lot of people who start giving time and, you know, really focusing outside themselves. They, they go in their side and in, in themselves to reflect is the universe is not done with me yet, but I'm very aware that maybe I'll get frustrated with me and give up on me because it's happened twice in one year. <laughs> and what I would actually say is I know the direction I'm going in. And for me, the planning process is my writing. Because every book that I've written, I'm now writing my fifth book. I'm answering an important question for myself. And I'm trying to come to an understanding. I'm trying to create my own narrative. And to answer that question, I don't believe that someone really can focus on philanthropy until they're probably done with work. There was a gentleman who said no to Bill Gates and he didn't like what Bill Gates was asking these young guys to do. He was asking like uh, Zuckerberg to like, you know, don't, like promise half his money and stuff like that. He said, this kid, this guy gave lots of money, lots of money, almost all his money. And he, uh, he said, how can you ask someone so young what they want and what they want to give? Because, because, and they might blow it. They might go bankrupt. There's people who, 
you know, who made a ton of money in the 1990s with the dot-com bubble, and they're worth nothing now. You know, there's a life to live. It's at the end when you're no longer, you're no longer trying to hit it out of the park. That's when you can start giving back. And I truly believe philanthropy has to do with the two-legged race that we each run. There's the morning, and that's accumulation, that's ego. That's when we're getting jobs and we're like, you know, we're trying to buy houses, we're getting married and we're trying to become something. And the second half, which is a completely different race, is giving it away because you can't take it with you. If someone has been able to take it with them, I want them to call me right now and tell me the secret because <laughs> I don't know anybody. <laughs> so the question is, do you want someone to think that uh, Carnegie used this expression, the difference between a rich miser and the, the value of a rich, the value of a rich miser and a steer is when they're both dead. There you go. And that, and this was Carnegie. So it's not me. Yeah. So to answer your question, Amir, you know, I, I've had a lot of time to think over the last week. I know all this stuff. Like, like you had me over the dinner, man, when you want to talk about like what's happening in China right now, I, I'm obsessed with like what's going to happen in the economy. Do I really know what's going to happen? Absolutely not. You know, I like to feel safe by doing it. I can plan. I can plan until doomsday. I planned to go and visit a friend last week and then I find myself in the hospital. What good was the planning? However, I have to reevaluate. You know, and my goals change the circumstances. One thing I will share with people, giving to someone is a lot better than taking. And what is giving? And what is taking? There's no such thing as receiving a gift and there's no such thing as giving, giving a gift because you're either reaffirming a relationship or you're starting a relationship. So there's obligation involved in both. And I'll give you two, I'll give you one example. How many times have you guys given to a charity and they're constantly calling you the following year to give again? Yep. Yep. So you're, so that's what giving is. And also, you know, giving is as well. It's about reciprocity. I take you out for a coffee, you feel if you're a human being, you're going to take me out to a coffee. And there's certain people, they get paid in different ways. Some people get paid by like seeing that the good work and the smiles on people on their faces, like a women's shelter, like, you know, like, like families being put together again after it falls apart or some kid who is deserving can't afford you know, university is able to go to medical school and they get that. That happens to be a commodity because everybody has places, different values on different things. I'm sure uh, I'll give an example. My, my good friend Lee over there is an awesome golfer. And I'm sure there's a pair of clubs you would like really value in a golf course you would love to play on. Absolutely. Well, Lee, I hope you be my friend. I have no interest in playing golf because I'm not old. <laughs> <laughs> I, I place no value on it. I, I, I'll make you. I'll, I'll tell you another thing as well. I I have, um, you know, I got rid of my car when I moved from Toronto, and I would rent when I come here because of COVID. There was no reason for me to have a car because 
who was I going to see? Like, you know, I wasn't going to see clients. The only people I'd see would be like friends. I bought my, I, because of California, I started using that bird app. Oh, yeah. You know, that do those scooters? Scooters. So oh, yeah. I ended up buying myself a long distance scooter. Like that, and my daughter was saying I was embarrassing her because all her friends' parents were saying, your dad, he has no car. All he does is scoot around with a helmet and a scooter. That was enough for me. And, you know, my excitement is I'm getting a more powerful scooter so I can go up Mount Saladin. That's all I care about. There it is. You know, so everybody places different value on things. And as the financial advisor, going back to what we were talking about, just ask questions what's important. Ask people what they want to see. Uh, there's, a, there's a Jewish saying which is called tukalam. And what it translates to, it's always, you know, I, I ponder it all the time. It says, make the world better than you found it. Make it better than you found it. Give, and not only that, there's a thing called the bread of shame that we talked about. For everything you, everything you gain, you lose. So be conscious. And I think what happens when people are legitimately and maturely giving money, they're consciously giving it and they're, be they're benefiting it, not financial, not by having people say how great they are, by seeing the benefit that they know that they're going to change lives. I, I, I'm a storyteller. I love writing stories for years. I would chronic, I would chronicle other people's stories all the time. They want to describe and what do people really want by giving charity? They want people to remember them. They want people to, when I think of you and Mir and I think of Lee, your name comes up and you're no longer here. I want you to, or if I'm sorry, when I'm not here, I want you guys to <laughs> smile and have good thoughts about me. I want to turn it around. You guys are young. And, and I think that's what people want. And, and they want to have that benefit. I spoke to one of my great mentors today. Um, and, I, and it's a really, he gave me a gift and I, and I, he's, he's sick and he's 80 years old. And when I was young, he was, uh, he was on his way to becoming, he, he was making millions of dollars a month. And then the 1980 recession happened and he blew everything. Okay. He couldn't, the interest rates were 26%. He lost tons. And because he had gone bankrupt, the CPA board required that he be investigated so he couldn't use, tell anyone he had his designation and his wife left him because he blew up. And he got a job as a shipper. <laughs> and he said he couldn't tell anybody who, what he had done or whatever, because they'd say like, well, like you're lying. <laughs> right. Well, he had, a, he had a friend who started the largest technology placement company in the world and he he knew that this guy had a really great heart so what he did is he showed him how to make these computer consultants independent consultants and you know when you you hear from your you know, someone hears from their parents first become a professional and then you can become the garbage man. If the garbage man stuff doesn't work, at least you got the profession to fall back on to. <laughs> Never practiced a day in his life when he was an entrepreneur, but then he became an accountant and he started working with like, you know, technology professionals and he mentored. And I met him 
and he gave me a career. He let, he had the largest practice, the sole practitioner in Canada. He had over 4,000 computer consultants and we worked together and he, and I, and I've told this story because uh, it's important. He let me in and he gave me a career and he mentored me and I was young and I was cocky. And it was right after, because, you know, I was starting to do well. And we had a conversation. He said, you know, Peter, I believe you'll do well, but I think it's time for you to fly your wings because I don't think this is the place for you anymore. And then I spoke at a conference in front of like several hundred CPAs a few years ago. And he was in the crowd and we, and I saw him and I gave my, it's been like 20 years since I'd seen him. I was driving home. Uh, and two days later, and I got a call from him. He found me out. He searched me. And what he said to me was so important. He said to me, and it's a gift to me. He said to me that he was proud of what I accomplished. And I, you know, and he lived wow. to see that. And I think about that, guys. I think about charity. I think if I went to university and I give to a kid who, let's say, is disadvantaged and they end up going to university and they do something, it's like they got to see it. And you know what the most important thing is that I felt, and the reason I'm talking with emotion is because I called them up. I never told them this. You know, we... We become, you know, we're good friends now. We're equals. I called him up and I said, George, I just want you to know that meant so much to me. Like when you called me, because I, he came into my life maybe six months after my father had passed and I was so hungry for a mentor, an older male. And he was a gentle man and he's mentored tons of people. But for me, that call that day, well, you know, I took that emotion and I put it in the book because you know, it cha he changed my life twice. And I think there's nobody out there who's successful without someone's help. And if you become successful, I truly believe it's your responsibility to be a human being, to give back to the society that's helped you out. Because yeah, the roads are here because someone paid taxes. The schools you go to is because someone came before you. Sure. They thought enough about the future. And now it's, yeah, unfortunately, you know, when you look at it, we only make maybe about anywhere from 70 cycles around the earth to maybe some people I was reading, this gentleman I was talking to today, his grandma, great grandmother is 111. But she's got 111 cycles. But when you look at the entirety of history, that's really a blip. Yeah, that's an anomaly for sure. Well, How are you doing, gentlemen? You, yeah, no, we're, we're good. doing great. I was just going to tell you, Peter, you have a you have a knack for uh, being able to articulate and tell your stories, and it's so engaging. It's know? very um, engaging, yeah, absolutely. Very engaging. And um, early on, when, when I was just getting insurance, uh, I was given a book to read, uh, The Art of uh, Storytelling, and um, and and just being able to articulate and be able to engage your audience and get your point across. It's 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 a valuable skill set, and you sure have it, my friend. You really do. Well, I actually met my match in San Diego. Who is it? 
It wasn't Lee, was it? <laughs> well, Lee's good. No, it's a guy who actually is a little older. I'll give you his his uh, his name. His name is Neil Santura. I think his wife is running in the runoffs for the San Diego mayor, and he's had a very interesting life. He, um, it's, like it's all public knowledge about his life. What he did was. Uh, he wrote for MASH and they went to San Diego and he built like 2 million square feet of office space downtown San Diego. Then he went into a bunch of software companies and biotech companies and now he's a VC. I think it's Blackbird. I think it's Blackbird. You know, please forgive me for getting it wrong. And we sat down, we just met not long ago and he got a phone call and I'm not going to tell you about what transpired, but he said to me, let me tell you a story <laughs> and maybe you can help me with it. And it's like, I'm going, this man here is my brother. He's not going to say it straight for you. It's got a moral to it. It's got everything. But he has to tell you the story first. And you know what's powerful about stories? And this is also how get people to do philanthropy is the reason everybody loves stories, and when I took up writing and I realized that there were people who spent time studying of like how stories work and why they're riveting, is it's a survival mechanism. I tell you a story, you are going to immediately start imagining you know, your life and start relating to it, and you're gonna be able to learn from it. And as advisors, you guys have the greatest opportunity because you are bumblebees. You fly from this place to that place to this place and you learn about this person and what they're doing. And you can share different stories that would help people learn. Well said. And that is so powerful. And it's, it's beautiful being able to make a point through a story because think about it. And I, well, I'm gonna share your real story, boys. How did my last book come about? Because that's a great story. You got hit by a scooter, by a truck, right? No, I'm talking about the King of Main oh, Street King of Main that, Street. that okay. you're reading. <laughs> How that came about. So I'm sitting in the bookstore and I, you know, I read about how to work and network and all that stuff. And I say to myself, you, and, I, and I see a book that's written by uh, a super wealthy guy, second generation money, like one of the wealth, like they have, they're, they're, they're probably worth about like seven or $8 billion, this gentleman. And I see the book is written by him and this other guy. It's obvious the other guy wrote the book, but he put this guy's name on it, right? <laughs> so what I did is I contacted the other gentleman who used to run this massive foundation in New York City, but now he was in the process of donating all that other man's money. So I did work with that gentleman and I uh, got him to write in my, my uh, textbook about how to do advisors. And I think that was the article gentleman I sent to you. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. This is the story. <laughs> so I, I was writing my, my last textbook for, the one of those gentlemen in that thing. And it wasn't the guy who I, it's the second guy's name that I don't even, I just mentioned him once in the book. I don't want to say 
here. I was writing it for him because I wanted to pitch him. <laughs> Got it. That was the reason. So you what wrote do it? I do? Pardon? That was the main reason you wrote the book. No, everybody in the book was like a heavy hitter. They were the top lawyers in okay. in North America. They were the top. Uh, you know, I like I had the who's who people who were like you know their textbooks. They were in practice and like I, I basically the way I got sell I got taught is I got these experts to give me hundreds of hours to give me chapters for my book. So my books were like tunes. They were like twelve hundred pages, and I might have only read like written maybe two hundred of it, and I, I had other people who were experts write in it, and I. You know, that's how I became the expert because they taught me and I got to put my name was on the front of the book. Right. <laughs> and they were my audience, not the not the people who were going to read it. Those people, because they had my clientele and we were working in a safe place together. Got it. So let me jump forward with that. Uh, that's a topic if you guys ever want to cover it about how you trade uh, items of an equal value. We're going to so need what, yeah. so it. We're going to need Pardon? more Peter Merrick at, a, at another time. Okay. Sure. So, yeah, I'm going to be in San Diego. So, you guys will like, you know, sit me down in a room because I'm really entertaining at that point. You yes. Give me some alcohol and I'm like, yes. I, I become oh, Alex I can't, Jones. I can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> I, I become Alex Jones. I'm just joking. <laughs> um, so, so, what happened is that was my motivation to make the book the best I could because it wasn't about these unknown readers. These people who had contributed free time and educated, I needed to show them a document that they would be proud to be it. Therefore, they would want to work with me, business, and refer clients to me. And I ended up pulling all my strings in my pistol, and I got invited to this uh, event that had a small event for future leaders, which I was much older, was university leaders. And then a larger community afterwards. So I got myself invited to this group of, let's say, 10 people. Like I really pulled strings where he was talking uh, on, you know, philanthropy and helping the next generation and everything. So I approach him afterwards and I say to this gentleman, I say, uh, hi, Charles. My name is Peter Merrick. I worked on this book and I have my tomb, which is, you know, it's massive. Your, your um, tax code is ridiculous, but ours <laughs> is only about, our, our, our tax code, I guess, is only about like six, about eight inches. And really that's how big my book was, it was eight inches big. <laughs> so it's like, it was the equivalent. It was more of an intimidation. Uh, factor when I would put it on the table. Yeah, so yeah. I go to him and I want to give him the book and I said, I want to give you this because uh, the guy who's giving away all your money, I didn't say that. I said, <laughs> he's in, he, he wrote a chapter in the book and he says two things to me that just completely shocked me, devastated me, and at the same time motivated me to write The King of Main Street. He's told me to keep the book. The lesson is he was second generation money. He's not the guy who made it. Oh, uh, got it. So his entire uh, life he's been treated. It. He's been treated like little little boy Fontaine, you know, like royalty, <laughs> rich, rich, whatever, right? I don't want to say anything. His brother had died. He was old and he was born rich. 
this. He was a pop ad though. He says to me, you keep it. I'm not going to read it. And then he says something very revealing to me. He says to me, my entire life, Peter, I've been paying people like you to read books like that. So I don't have to. Wow. And I left that, and I was a little shocked because I'm thinking, you're talking about young leaders, people in the future, like, you know, taking, I'm at this event, I'm like, I like to think that maybe I'm the future. Right, right. Because right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? I'm only 40 at the time, so I haven't gone through my midlife crisis and really go inwards, right? So I sat and I thought, and I said, I got to write a book that this guy would actually want to read. <laughs> I love it. That's and I ended up reading like 200 books on male aging and I started reading how to write and how to do it. And then I, the people who, and I read about 70 books on writing and the people who I really liked, I ended up uh, hunting them down and hired them to, and I, and my, all my other books were by uh, LexisNexis. I don't know if you guys are familiar yeah, with sure. LexisNexis. Yeah. So they published, like they, they own the columns that I wrote for. And they wrote, they have the rights to all my technical writing. I'm basically stuck with them if I write technical stuff. Um, so for like, I actually tell them, you're stuck being married to me. I'm stuck married to you. <laughs> and the only way I'm not stuck is they're not business fiction. Right. Well, so there you what, I, what, I, what I did is I said, I'm going to write a story. I want to own this story. So I spent probably about $45,000 on the editing. And I edited it. We're talking like thousands of hours of me because God forbid someone would want to play with my voice. and I would be freaking out. I had one guy who was, I'd been friends for years. Like I'd call him up in the morning and I thank him. He's my story editor. And he said, why? He said, thank God you didn't talk to me last night because your name, I was saying profanity, like you were an asshole. How could you do this? And I'd, I'd be like a truck. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have power steering that I spent all night trying to get it back oh, in the man. right lane. And I made it better. And then I brought in proofreaders and whatever because I wanted to own it because I wanted to be able to give something that I could give to these people that actually would, you know, and like I have close to 30 years experience in our business and I wanted to, to convey what I'd seen and learned and talk about philanthropy, talk about succession in life, whether it's succession in your business, but, you know, changing from one stage of life to another and what I had seen and what I had read and what, I, unfortunately now that I'm, 51 years old, I'm starting to experience myself. <laughs> well, Peter, I, I got to tell you that, I mean, I could listen to you indefinitely. You have so much wisdom and all these things that you're sharing, I think are invaluable lessons for everybody. I don't care how old you are, right? Because it doesn't matter. And I've heard you reference before. It doesn't matter how old you are. You still might be lost, right? So I can't thank you enough for sharing this stuff. And we got to have you back on the podcast, man, because... Um, I, need, I need more Peter Merrick in my life. You know, you know Jack Daniels? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm there. <laughs> and, Pe and Peter, next time you're down here, I mean, seriously, please uh, hit me in the oh, up. Yeah, let's go do dinner. We'll go down to La Jolla somewhere, and uh, and I'd love to hear more of these stories, honestly. You've, uh, well, you guys, have been, you guys have been awesome, and I want to thank you very much. I'm three hours ahead, so I'm probably going to fall asleep right after. <laughs> <laughs> Well, good stuff, Peter. Thank you again for taking the time. We will definitely connect when you're in town. And uh, 
man, just really enjoy that. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. Take care. Guys, have a wonderful night. Okay. You too, buddy. Talk soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.